good morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I have very little lung capacity, so I might be pausing a little bit more than normal, may not be quite as excited. <clears throat> I get tired easily still, but I appreciate your prayers. Um, and uh, man, it was a, it's been an interesting last few weeks. Last week, <clears throat> I just kind of sat at home by myself because Susan and Clint were able to come and be here and just wept. It was the first time I'd missed three Sundays of church in a row in my entire life since I've been born. And uh, it was just one of those moments of the stark reality of a broken world we live in and broken bodies and <clears throat> the, uh, the fight that we have to make Christ known uh, while there's still time. And uh, so had a lot of time to think for sure when you're laying there on the couch. Jason, I texted him a picture of <clears throat> my living room and he said texted back and said it's never a good sign when there are sheets on the couch right like you know that boy there's there's stuff going on in the home <clears throat> and uh so yeah glad that uh, I can be joining you we're starting our series in first chronicles and second samuel those two books actually <clears throat> they line up together so those two books um my clicker's not working guys so you're going to have to advance uh those two books <clears throat> kind of mirror the stories of one another. Not completely, but pretty close. And, um, and these stories, really, it's talking about the kingship of David. It lays out King David and, and kind of the, the process of how things went down. First Samuel is the story of, we'll look in just a minute, uh, is the story leading up to that point of King David coming. And Second Samuel and First Chronicles are kind of the laying out of, of David's reign. Uh, and what he did well, what he didn't do well. <clears throat> and so we picked the picture of, you know, Michelangelo's David there. And uh, so you can, you can see that. Um, and this morning, what I want to talk about, and the title of our series is What Happened, Tell Me. And our title today is After Death. What Happened, Tell Me. You know, the, the Bible, the scriptures, <clears throat> are God telling us what happened. That's what they are. Luke did a great job of talking about the importance of Scripture, talking about the importance of the Word of God and knowing it and understanding it, and why it's so essential because we live in a world that doesn't want to tell us the reality, the truth about what's happened. I mean, look at where we're at right now with scientists and politicians and, I mean, just the mess we're in because we can't tell one another honestly what happened. We have to... We have to sugarcoat everything. We have to cover it. We have to be careful with it and, and, and frame everything so that it works out for our benefit so we look better, right? And God is brutally honest when you read scripture. God is just like, here's reality. Man sinned and now there's death. And there's death all around you, but I want to bring life to you. And the reason Jesus came was to, to prove to us with full confidence, what happens after death? That when you die, it's not over. There's an eternity facing us. Every world religion kind of believes that or talks about that, that it's not the end of you, there's something that happens afterwards. It's the minority of the world that believes that nothing happens after you die. It's probably only about 5 to 10% of the world's population are true atheists. 90 to 95% are agnostic. Yeah, I believe there's something, there's, there's probably something after you die, but I don't know what it is, and I, I hope. God says in his word, and he lays this out for us, <clears throat> so that we can see exactly what happened. He tells us honestly, and he asks us to make choices based on that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, and, and, and we're always trusting someone, aren't we? We're always asking the question, what happened? How did this take place? What, what could I have done differently? And sometimes there's not an answer. Sometimes it just, it's the way it goes. We lived in a cursed and broken world. And the real question is, is what makes someone trustworthy? What makes someone be able to understand what happened and that you can trust their word? And that's what God lays out in his scripture. He's constantly saying, you can trust me, but there's a world around us that's constantly telling us, don't trust him. Don't trust him. Don't. You need more. He's not enough. 
And we hear that over and over. And you know, as Christians, we should be the best evidential investigators on the face of the planet instead of experienced junkies. And unfortunately, in the church today, and in our modern world today, most of what you see in Christianity is experienced junkies. I want another experience, and another experience, and another experience. It's not look at evidence, break it down, investigate it. It's just whatever feels right, do it. Whatever I think is right, I do. And if it works out well, then it must have been right. And God lays out in Scripture these moments. He lays out these periods of time where people do things and it looks like they're on the right path and then it just ends in disaster and you're like, what happened? And it's because they were only looking at the evidence of experience, not truly their hearts. You know, last Sunday was Memorial Day. This Sunday, I don't know if you know this, but this Sunday is the anniversary of D-Day in World War II where men got out of ships in boats knowing and being told that the casualty rate would be 75% for the first boats that hit the shore. Can you imagine being in a boat with 20 people and recognizing that only five of you were going to actually reach the beach without being dead? You may be injured, shot through the arm, but not dead. The casualties were staggering. And these young men faced everything to to take on an enemy and to take on a falsehood, a false teaching about, again, God's people, a false teaching about certain people are better than other people instead of we're all in the same boat and we need Christ to save us. It was called, but what you don't know about this story, this is critical, What you don't know about the story, because it was hidden until the 1970s, was that over between 1,000 and 1,500 men died in the months leading up to D-Day, practicing for D-Day. That's a lot. They weren't actually participating in the battle yet. They were simply running drills with live ammunition. They were running drills with German U-boats blowing up their boats while they were running the drills because they knew they had to run the drills if the army was going to be effective at taking D-Day. And it cost 1,500 lives. You know, sometimes we forget that some of us may never get to be in that war, right? We never may make it to that, but God, in his incredible wisdom, tells us that it's worth it. That you putting in the effort, you making him known, you walking with him, you running the exercises, running the drills, doing what he's asked you to do makes a difference long term. It changes lives. The battle is worth it even if you're not really in the battle yet because God is preparing people behind you. Look at 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. We're going to cover this in one slide. One slide. (laughs) Nine chapters in one slide. That's a record for me, just so you all know. Okay? This is the genealogy that God lays out. And God takes one man, Abraham, and he makes a promise and a covenant with this man. And he says, I will make your descendants as much as the sands on the seashore, as much as the stars in the heaven. And today that is true. The three major world religions trace their lineage back to this man. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. God is still fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham. He's still doing what he said would happen, and he's still telling us about it. That's how faithful God is. And that should shock you. That should amaze you. That there is a God that's that faithful for that many thousands of years. And Abraham only had had two sons, but one promised son. So God takes one man and one kid, one son, and creates the majority of the world's religion with it. Guys, that, 
We've heard that so many times that we don't actually fathom that for a moment. That the reason that Abraham, these covenants that God made with people, with David when he makes a covenant, are so powerful is because God's behind it. And the covenant that he makes with us when we begin a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, when we surrender to him. Remember, in the Old Testament, people surrendered to God saving them in the future. When Jesus walked the earth, people surrendered to him saving them in that moment. And we look back and we celebrate that God has saved us because we've surrendered to him and that we'll all be saved in the future. It's the same message. It's identical throughout Scripture. And God gives us these covenants to prove himself true. That God through Abraham brings the salvation to the world. You look in Chronicles and it talks about Adam to Abraham. Abraham's descendants, the Edomites, the Israel, Israel's sons, Judah's descendants, David's descendants, Judah's kings, David's line after the exile, Judah's descendants, Simeon's, Reuben's, Gad's, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Levites, the musicians, Aaron's descendants, the settlements of the Levites, Issachar's descendants, Benjamin's, Naphtali's, Manasseh's, Ephraim's, Asher's, Benjamin's descendants, and after the exile, God talks about Saul's family right here because he's setting up what's getting ready to happen in the story. These are people like you and me. This list of names in this first nine chapters are people that were simply faithful. People that God chose to mention. People that he wrote down in his book. Oh, and by the way, if you make a decision to follow Christ, we don't have an earthly genealogy. We actually have a heavenly genealogy that your name and my name are written in called the the Lamb's Book of Life. And when he writes that name down, he doesn't erase it. It is there permanently, just like these names in Scripture are there permanently. We don't go back and erase Naphtali because we don't like him anymore. We don't go back and because of the sins of Gad, we erase him out or Simeon. God is faithful to his promises, to what he has said is true, to what he said would happen. And he tells us, sometimes he tells us ahead of time, Sometimes he tells us in the moment, and sometimes he tells us from the past, and the scriptures are our guide. One man, and here's the crazy part, when you read through these passages and you see the names of people and you go back and read the Old Testament, many of these people were wicked at times. They made horrendous, awful decisions that we would cringe at today. And yet God mentions them and talks about he is still working through these people, this brokenness. And he's talking about the fact that he's going to bring the nation back together. I don't know if God will bring our nation back together. I don't know. But I do know he will bring his nation back together, his people. And that's what these first nine chapters of Chronicles lays out. It is the promise of God to do what he said he would do. And when we get to Saul's family, it's the promise of God to be the king for his people. I want us to turn to 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, because I need to give you some backstory, because you have to remember kind of what's going on. God's people have been enslaved, they've been rescued out of slavery, they haven't been obedient, They've, they've actually defeated won the promised land, they haven't been obedient, now everything's a mess, other nations have warred against them, and now they're in a position where judges came in, and God brought judges to kind of judge his people and protect them. You can read the book of Judges, it's all there, and after the book of Judges, you have God raise up this prophet, this kind of prophet priestly figure, Samuel. Samuel is given away by his mother, Hannah. He he is raised by Eli, who is kind of a, not the guy you would want to raise your son. He raised two very wicked sons. And Hannah turns over Samuel to be raised in the temple by the priest Eli, who has not done a good job as being a dad. But she trusts God so much with this barren womb she had and this child God gave her that he says, this child is yours. That's a lesson for us. 
So many people cling so tightly to their children and their relationships instead of being willing to release them to God. Release them and say, you know what? I don't even have to raise them because I trust God's promises so much. That's amazing faith. And that's Samuel. And so Samuel grows up in the temple hearing God's voice. Eli's even amazed that he can hear his voice. Now Samuel's older. He's lived his life. He's walked with God for a long time. It goes on and says this, when Samuel grew old, verse 1 of chapter 8, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest gain. They took bribes, perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old. <laughs> How kind. How kind. You're old, dude. This is our culture today, is it not? We have so many churches that this is the way they do business. Bribes, pervert justice, dishonest gain. They don't read the word of God. They just do what works. And when they have a pastor who's been faithful, who calls them to the table, ah, you're old, we're not listening to you. We don't need to listen to all those old people. It goes on and it says, your sons do not follow your example. It's true. Therefore, appoint a judge, a king, to judge us the same as all the other nations. This had to be the lowest moment, one of the lowest moments for Samuel. Samuel has been faithful to serve God. He wasn't even raised in a family. He had to be raised by Eli. His sons have obviously made their own choices. If you know Samuel, Samuel confronted sin. He dealt with things. He called people to the table. I don't know if he did with his sons or not, but now you're at the end of your life. You're looking at your family. Your family's a mess. No one wants you anymore in ministry. You're just old and we want you out of the way. And here is Samuel wondering, what happened? Is is this even worth it? I mean, he had to be so discouraged. They basically told him, you're as good as dead and you've done a bad job. We need somebody else. This faithful prophet to his people. And then, beyond that, they demand that they want a king because God isn't enough. Goes on, says this. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand sinful. So he prayed to the Lord. Why would you want another king than our king, the God of the universe? Why do you want what all everybody else has, what the nations have? Isn't that Facebook to a T? You know, I found myself while I was sitting there for three weeks, <clears throat> scrolling through Facebook, praying for people, but I also found myself jealous at times. When you look through people's lives and you see the ease, you know, the joke among our staff was that, you know, I've been in ministry 26 years and I've never had a sabbatical. So this week I said, God gave me a sabbatical. It was wonderful right? He's given me a wonderful sabbatical. And let me tell you, it was amazing for me. One of the most encouraging things for me was to watch you as the body of Christ step up to serve one another the last several weeks. People just saying, I'll do what needs to be done to serve Christ and his body. Sure, I'll be there. I'll, I'll clean. I'll take care of that. That was one of the most encouraging things for me. It brought me to tears multiple times. To think about you guys following Christ and loving his bride. And then looking on Facebook and seeing people traveling and being away from their church multiple Sundays in a row. And wondering how. How can, not that it's bad to travel. We travel and we go to church when we travel. But I look at Samuel and he goes to the Lord. This is key. Samuel just didn't say, you're sinners. He went to the Lord. And here's what the Lord said. But the Lord said to him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them. But you must solemnly warn them 
and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. I love this. See, sometimes God gives us exactly what we want. That's the story of the prodigal son, right? He gave his youngest son the inheritance knowing he was going to squander it. He knew his son wasn't going to be responsible with it. And he gave him the full inheritance knowing it was going to be a disaster, hoping that in the midst of that it would grab the attention of his son and bring him back to him. And so sometimes you can think things are going great. You can think God's really blessing and that God's really moving and everything's going wonderful. And in reality, God's just giving you everything you want for when the crash happens for you to come back to him. And he does it all through scripture, all the time. Even Jesus told a parable, multiple parables about that. Getting everything and costing you your life. And he looks and he says, you have got to solemnly warn them. You know, that's one of the things you'll find about our church that's, I don't want to say unique, but something we strive for. We strive to look at people, pray, and look at them and say, look, you can make that decision, but here's the reality, here's the warnings. We're going to lay this out for you of how this could go down. God's grace is enough. It's sufficient. He can forgive you. He He can change things, but he may not. And we lay out for people and we solemnly warn them about the choices and what we see coming. And it's always amazing how often, because we go to the Bible, we lay it out through Scripture, it goes that way. It's amazing how few of us, myself included, will actually adhere to the solemn warning and say, okay, then I won't do that. (laughs) It's amazing how how many of us have to do it so that we can experience the back end of God's grace. And that's the story of Scripture. And isn't it awesome that God does have grace on us through the payment that he pays, that we deserve to be annihilated. These people do not deserve. They are demanding. This is awful. He goes on in verse 10. It says, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who are asking him for a king. He said... These are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and daughters and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can, and then there is a list of everything that this king can and will have the right to do when we anoint him king to you. Period. See, see, God doesn't mince words. God is serious about authority. He's serious about recognizing. It doesn't mean we don't talk about the evil of authority. I mean, Samuel's laying it out. This is what's going to happen. If you want a king, this is what's going to happen. And see, we keep electing a new president every four years, right? A new king, and he's going to fix things for us. And it's worse. I don't know if you've noticed. It's, It's not getting better. It hasn't really gotten better. We're further in debt. We're bigger in a mess. There's more lies being told, more cover ups, more. More of everything. And God told us this is the way it would be. He warned us. He said, this is is how it works when you don't trust me, when I'm not your leader, when you don't listen to one another and the shepherds around you. This is what is going to take place. He goes on, he says in verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we will be like all the other marriages, nations, workplaces. You see, we love to fill in the blank of king and think, well, I'm not choosing a king. No, we choose all kinds of other relationships to fill up our lives. It's not wrong to have relationships. It's actually biblical (laughs) to have relationships with the church and with lost people and to bring them into the family of God. It's it's necessary. But what we often end up doing is making a relationship our God and putting that first in front of God. And when that happens, we get in big trouble. And God says, he goes on, he says, our king will judge us, go out before us, and this is key, fight our battles. See, we're always looking for someone else to fight our battles. Tell me what happened. Right? What happened? Tell us. Okay, I'll tell you. You didn't fight your own battle. 
You keep looking for somebody else to fix it. You keep looking for something else, another drug, another thing to fix it. You're not trusting God. That's, what's, that's the problem. No, no, that can't be it. Like, like I'll, I'll try this again and again and again. And God, in his incredible grace, continues to extend grace and forgiveness. God wanted to be their king. Verse 21 says, Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. That had to be so hard. No, they're wrong. You're to be their king. No, give them what they want. You're just going to have to let them have what they want. That's awful. When you're in the position of a leader, and you have to look and say, okay, and this is going to be his legacy. Like, I thought my legacy was going to be the nation is worshiping, and they all repent, and it's going to be wonderful, and God's going to come and rescue us, and instead, Samuel is anointing a king. Appoint a king for them, God says. Jump to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, there was an influential man. Look at all the adjectives as I read this. There was an influential man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than Saul. He even stood a head taller than anyone else. Oh, this must be our king. I mean, just look at him. Look at the circumstances. I mean, the tribe of Benjamin was known as a warrior tribe, a tribe that would fight. This must be the right king for us. See, they didn't even pray. They didn't ask God. They didn't, they didn't consider the Lord. They just ran to the relationship that looked right, that seemed right, that circumstantially fit what they wanted, which was someone who would be a warrior to defeat the nations that were bugging them, to fix their problems. They didn't want a priest, they didn't want, or they didn't want a prophet, they didn't want a truth teller, they didn't want a prayer, they wanted a warrior, and they got it. Goes on to say this, verse chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, because here's what happens. Saul is anointed king, and it isn't soon after that that Saul begins to go downhill. He feels the pressure of being anointed king. <clears throat> he feels the pressure of not having any character, but propping himself up that he doesn't have the Lord behind him. He doesn't have that strength of the Lord behind him. He leaves the Lord. He seeks a medium. He does all these things we'll see in a minute. And God looks at him and says, I've rejected you as king. That doesn't mean he's rejected him as one of his family. We'll see that as well. But it does mean that God has said, I'm done with your kingship. I can't continue this. And so the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. Here's Saul. He's been rejected. Samuel's like, my ministry is a disaster. I got two sons that don't listen. I got a mess. I got Saul. I mean, this has to be just and finally, the Lord's like, Samuel, it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to mourn. I still got work for you to do. Get up, fill your horn with oil. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. Now God is selecting a king. See, before the people selected their king, now God said, I've selected a king. Samuel goes, and it's interesting because... Samuel goes and he falls into the same trap. All of Jesse's sons are par paraded before Samuel. And Samuel's like, oh, this one must be it. Oh, this one. Oh, this one. And God's like, nope, 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 nope. So Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you have any more kids? Jesse said, yeah, I have another one. It's David. He's out in the fields. He's the little runt. He's out in the fields tending sheep. Jesse sent for him. He had a beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Not tall, doesn't say strong. It's like, well, he's got good eyes and he looks pretty good. Goes on, it says, so Samuel took the horn of oil. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, the Lord said, anoint him. He is the one. He took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. 
See, Samuel, Saul longed to want to have a relationship with God, but he kept putting other relationships in front of God, so he never felt like God was with him. David has got God with him. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. This is amazing. Right after this, look at the timeline that happens right after this. David is anointed by Samuel. A year later, Saul is being tormented by demons. Because of his rejection of God, he has torment in his life. And he calls and he asks, is is there any musician in the kingdom? And they said, yeah, there's this guy David. He plays the lyre while he's tending sheep. He's out worshiping, playing for God every day. He gets really good. He gets really good with a sling and protecting animals. And he gets really good at worship. Because he's out by himself with sheep all the time. Right? And that's just his heart. His heart is to protect sheep and worship God. That's the heart of David. And he says, yeah, there's this guy named David. Saul doesn't know David's been anointed the next king at this point. And so he calls David in. David becomes a musician for Saul. He works for Saul, knowing that he's been anointed as the next king for three years. After three years, David kills Goliath. He gets sent home. Saul's off at war. David comes to bring lunch to his brothers who are fighting When that happens, he sees Goliath taunting the people of God and taunting God himself. And David's like, I can hit moving lions. This guy's standing still with his helmet off. And so he takes a sling. He gets five smooth stones. He selects five stones because David recognizes that Goliath has four brothers. So he chooses five stones because the relationships matter. And people tend to defend relationships they care about. He goes, and with one stone, he takes down Goliath. He cuts off his head. And the army wins. Five years later, David becomes a commander in Saul's army. People are so excited about David and his war and how he defeated Goliath and how he works with the troops that David is given a command in Saul's army. And as soon as that happens... Saul starts to become incredibly, before this he was jealous, but now Saul becomes incredibly jealous. And five years later, David is threatened by Saul and on the run. It's been 14 years since he was anointed to be the king. 14 years. I was griping about 14 days on the couch with God. 14 years, and now he's on the run, wanted to be killed by the king of Israel. And God, and and David, through that whole time, even though three separate times he could have killed Saul, he refuses to kill Saul. He refuses to take matters into his own hands, to make relationships work the way he wants them to work, and he says, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to walk with him. And in the meantime, David's best friend with Jonathan, which is Saul's son, the oldest son, the one that will take over the throne. And David and Jonathan have a relationship that when you read it in scripture, is one of the most beautiful pictures of biblical discipleship and kinship and brotherhood probably anywhere in the Bible. It's beautiful, their relationship. And Jonathan recognizes that David is the next king. Jonathan's like, I will turn my kingdom over to you. (laughs) Hands off. You are the one that is to lead Israel. And in the meantime, Jonathan is still fighting for his dad. Goes on, and in the meantime, three years later, and these times could be a little off, but it's about like this. David ends up fighting for King Asius of the Philistines from Gath. See, David is on the run, and finally David's had enough. He's at his lowest point, and he goes, and he actually, it's a long story, but basically makes a a partnership with the enemy, the Philistines, the ones that he fought against, and Goliath, and like, he's like, I'm done. I just, I have to get away from Saul, and if I can get into the Philistine territory, Gath. Gath is where Goliath was from. (laughs) Do you realize that? Like, David is like, in the midst, three years later, David would have been looking around and going, how did I get here? I was anointed king 17 years ago. I've done everything faithful. I've worshiped God. I've led the people in worship. I've served as a commander in the army. I've not killed Saul three different times. I've done everything you wanted me to do, God, and look at where I'm at. 
And he makes this covenant with Asius, the Philistines, and at the time of the covenant, you ready for this? The Philistines go to war with Saul and kill Saul and all of his sons, and we're going to read that in just a second. And so now David finds himself living in Philistine territory, not having participated in killing his people, but in this limbo of what am I doing? Look, you may be there. You may be looking and saying, I feel like I'm in the wrong camp. I've been, I'm walking in the wrong place with the wrong people. David hasn't even been made king yet. That should give you hope. God's not done with him yet. God's not done with you yet. There's still hope, and you may be wandering, and what am I doing? This is a beautiful thing, and it's not until, look, two years later, David's anointed king of Judah, and then at age 37, seven years later, he's anointed the king of Israel. He has to wait seven years. 11, he's anointed. 37, he finally gets to be the king he was promised to be 26 years that's how long I've been in ministry 26 years of waiting on the run difficulty and so there's where we find David right now and here's where we see what happened we're going to read through this pretty quick 1 Samuel 31 when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead Remember, the Philistines came and warred. He fell on his own sword. Oh, wait, sorry. Back up. Verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them. Many were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinibdab, and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers caught up with him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it. Or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. Saul recognizes he's dying and he's like, kill me, please. I just want to be dead. Listen, there was a moment these last several weeks where I just cried out to God and I said, I just want this over. I just want it over. Couldn't breathe. Felt like I was having a heart attack. And I'm like, God, just... I'm done. I've served you. I'm ready to go home. Like, just take it away. <laughs> Either me or this disease. And that's not the first time I've been there. Because I've been in other situations when I had a staph infection and thought it's over. <clears throat> and here's Saul recognizing. Saul could have surrendered 26 years earlier to the Lord. For 26 years, Saul fought the will of God. And now he finds himself there. Verse 5, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died with him. This is just awful. Saul takes his life and then the armor bearer takes his life. There's this sense of like, I've failed. Depression, mess. And then it says, so on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had run away and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. What a tragic moment in the nation of Israel. Your king is dead. All of his sons you think are dead, or most of them are dead. Not all of them, we'll see. This had to be such a low moment. And for David, it goes on to say, verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head just like they did to Goliath's, stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Worship broke out across all of Philistia. All of it. 
They began to worship and say, look, our God must be the real God because we won. Circumstantially, things have worked out well, so obviously our God's better than their God, so let's worship that. Then they put, on his, ar- put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs, that's the Asherah pole, fertility pole, that the Philistines worshipped, and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. The promised land is now gone. Does God keep his covenants? What's going to happen? What happens after death? What happens after this mess? What happens when Samuel looks and says, I'm growing old, what's going to happen? 1 Chronicles 10, 13 says this, Saul died. See, God tells us what happened. I love this. He said, Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance. That's consulting someone who talks to the dead. But he did not inquire of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. God doesn't mince words. He's like, I gave Saul 26 years, 26 years to repent. (laughs) He wouldn't do it. I gave him 26 years to, to seek me, to inquire of me. He wouldn't do it. He just inquired of the people. And what do the people want? And what, is, what do my leaders want? And what, what do the other nations want? And what, he constantly just not saying, what does God want? Goes on and says this. When the residents of Gabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at, at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterwards, They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let me tell you about this group of people really quickly. They have a sordid history. If you read Judges 19 through 21, this was the group of people that God sent a a priest with his concubine and they raped and killed the concubine and left the concubine on the front porch. It's a terrible story. The priest then cuts up the body parts of the concubine and sends it to the ends of the empire and says, this is what the Benjamites, the people from this area were Benjamites. They were of Saul's people. This is what they did. And then the the rest of the 11 nations, the, the, the children of God, war against them and annihilate them almost to the point where the tribe of Benjamin was no longer going to exist, and then God asked them not to do that, but to allow the tribe of Benjamin to reestablish itself. And so that's what happens, and you can read the story. It's awful. This is a group of people that you should say, man, these people deserve to be dead. These people, because of their sordid history and their past and their mess, they don't deserve anything. But these people then raised up, they multiplied, they became healthy again, And in 1 Samuel 11, they actually came and they were attacked and Saul actually came and fought, marched all night and attacked and saved them. And because Saul did that, he gained their allegiance. They saw Saul as someone who cared about them, someone who would rescue us even though we don't deserve to be rescued. The rest of Israel looked at these people and were like, ugh, they're from that group. Goes on and says, after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. See, what happened is David was off <clears throat> fighting with the Philistines, helping the Philistines, and the Amalekites, who Saul was supposed to kill and defeat, and that was his first major sin, was he went after the Amalekites, he was supposed to annihilate them, and instead he kept all the goods, he kept the king alive, and he didn't get rid of them. Why? Well, this is a group of people that I can now have a relationship with. I can use. I can now manipulate. God's like, that's not what I asked you to do. And Samuel has to confront Saul, and it's a big mess. Now these Amalekites have come and taken David, all of his men's wives, all of their goods, and they've taken them. And now David gets his men together and says, we're going after him. He goes, he defeats them, they get their wives back, they get their stuff back. And now he returns to the Philistine territory after this huge mess. They are just got done fighting. Listen, they've just got done fighting the people Saul was supposed to deal with and didn't. How frustrating does that have to be if you're David? These people shouldn't even be around anymore. 
They were given a chance to repent. They didn't. God went to war with them. And now I'm having to fight Saul's battles that he didn't take care of. Ever been there? Why do I have to cut the veggies? There's supposed, somebody else is supposed to do that at work. Why do I have to pick up the weights? Somebody else is supposed to do Why do I have to finish this project? Somebody else was supposed That's where David is in this moment. He just had his wives, all their wives, all their goods taken. And they had to go fight for it. He's living in Philistine, or in, in, with the Philistines. On the third day, look what it says. A man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. It's been three days. They didn't have internet. Things traveled slowly. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This would have hit David like a ton of bricks. Jonathan, his best friend, is dead. This guy says, I've come from the armies. He's saying he was fighting with the Israelites, right? In other words, this guy's coming. Now, David has to actually inspect the story. He has to find out, are they really dead? What happens after death? Is this really what's happening? We got to figure this out. Because I got choices to make. If death's happened of the king, then something's going to happen with me. And I've got to make choices. And in the midst of all of that emotion, all of those thoughts, all of this mess that David's going through, Look at what David's response is. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I am an Amalekite. When you read this story, you're going to find that this story doesn't match the story God told earlier in 1 Samuel and Chronicles. You want to know why? Because this guy's lying. This guy probably was fleeing from David, and in his midst of fleeing from David and not being killed as an Amicalite, he ends up stumbling over Saul, and he begins to formulate a plan to get in good with David. He begins to formulate a plan of, man, he's I'm an Amicalite, and I'm supposed to be annihilated. i got to figure out something to do. Oh, here's Saul's dead body. I'm going to... Here's how I'm going to manipulate the situation. I can go back to David. Maybe he'll spare me. Like this guy begin, and this is what we do. We begin to formulate these plans to protect ourselves and protect things instead of just being honest and truthful. It goes on, it says this. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I am mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. Up until that point, the guy was pretty much telling a pretty good story, right? Mount Gilboa, right location, he fell on a spear. Yep, Saul ran his, his own spear through himself. Like he's right on track. But now he takes the story, he's taken the truths of the story, and he's going to take advantage of this death, of this, this mess. He's going to take advantage of this problem, and he's going to politicize it for himself. Sound familiar? And that's exactly what he does. He begins to twist the story. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm and I've brought them here to my Lord. You're the next king and I wanted you to have the crown and the armband. I wanted you. See, we fall for this stuff. We can easily fall for people who come along like this and give us these stories and walk us through these things and we go, oh yeah, oh well thank you, it's so wonderful. Now, this is the beauty of this. David's response is amazing because at this moment, David should be like, oh, wow, I'm going to be king. Oh, I mean, there should, look at David's response. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. It'd be like ripping the buttons off my shirt. Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, right here. He tears them and the men with him tore their clothes as well. They mourned and wept and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword. For Saul his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David takes no glory in the death of people who claim to know God. We need to be very careful with that. We can oftentimes be grateful people fall. Don't be grateful. Be broken that people fall. Weep over their fallenness. Weep over their brokenness. 
Don't want to see bad happen to them. That's what David does. After the death of Saul and Jonathan, and, and yes, they deserved it. God even said, I did this on purpose. In 1 Chronicles 10, David is like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to weep. Because this is not what God intends. God intends for us to love him and walk with him. And we're sinners and we do this. And so I am going to cry out to God. He doesn't even check the story yet. He is so broken emotionally. When most of us would have taken advantage of the situation, most politicians would have taken advantage, David is just broken. And he calls the men and the people around him to fast and pray. Seek God, inquire of the Lord. Don't just look at the circumstances and say, well, now we get to march into Israel. Now God, no. Doesn't matter if 26 years ago I was anointed the king. God hasn't told me I'm king yet. And see, that's where we're at. It doesn't matter that I've come to know Christ and that I've been anointed by him through the Holy Spirit. It's not my time yet. (laughs) God's still giving me more time. And how we live matters. That's why there's the list in Chronicles of all the people that died and their descendants and the people after them and the people after them. And we sit here today because of all of that. And he goes on and he says this. After he's done weeping, David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report. Hey, where are you from? Right? I'm the son of a foreigner, he said. I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him. See, now David's done mourning. Now it's time to get to the bottom of things. It's time to get to the truth. It's time to deal with things. How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This is a verse that's very misused today. Be very careful with this verse. There's a lot of pastors that run around and say, I'm God's anointed so you can't fire me or lift a hand against me. That is wicked, okay? Last time I checked, Samuel didn't show up at their church and pour oil over him in front of a bunch of people. Okay, we're all sheep and God has different gifts for us as sheep, right? No one's better than anyone else here. We have one shepherd, the chief shepherd. And anytime you have a person standing in the pulpit saying they are the shepherd, now we're back to having a king again, (laughs) right? Be very careful when you go through this. Now, are we supposed to approach elders properly? The scriptures talk about approaching elders. The scriptures talk about how to deal with sin and do that. But he goes up and he says, how that you were not afraid to lift a hand. Then David summoned one of his servants and said, come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head. Because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. I don't know what else to do. You, you killed the anointed king of Israel. How did you know he was going to die? How do you know God couldn't perform a miracle? You pull the spear out, it closes up, and he's alive, and he leads. David is not celebrating the death of Saul so he can become king. He's trying to investigate and get to the truth of what really happened. And when he sees that you are so unconcerned with God's will and God's ways and what God wanted, and three times I didn't kill Saul, and you just easily cut his head off and thought you could come here, bring a crown to me, bring me some goodies, and I would say, oh, oh, you're wonderful. You just come on in. David smelled the manipulation, and it cost this guy his life. And again, David said, I'm not, you're being killed because of what you said you did. Can you imagine this guy being like, no, no, I didn't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm lying. Oh, well, you're a Malachite, and we're supposed to kill them too, so too bad. Like, that, that's literally, this guy's in an impossible situation unless he were to come and tell the truth and say, I'm an Amalekite. I deserve to be dead, but I want you to be my king. I'll follow you. I'll, I'll surrender. I'll worship your God. And we know that in Scripture, when people do that, God opens up the foreigner to be able to be his people goes on and says this, David sang the following lament for Saul. We're going to read this lament. It's beautiful. David sits down to write a song. He's so broken, he has to just I gotta sing. And his son Jonathan, he ordered, ordered that the Judithites be taught the song of the bow. Those were leaders that led in singing. He's like, they need to be taught this song. This is not a time to rejoice. And he says, 
It is written in the book of Jashar. We don't have that book. God decided we didn't need it. So there you go. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. David sees Saul as mighty, not as worthless. Do not tell it in Gath. In other words, David's like, I'm not spreading this around here. I'm not going to say, ah, Saul's dead. No, nope. Don't announce it in the marketplace of Ashkelon or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the daughters of the uncircumcised will gloat. Mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you or fields or offerings for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained from the blood of the slain, from the bodies of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan loved and delighted. They were not parted in life or death. By David writing that, he's insinuating that Jonathan and Saul are together with God in death. That the wicked king Saul still received God's grace. And his son still received God's grace. I don't know. But that's a big insinuation at the end of that passage. David is broken. He doesn't rejoice. God says, I desire that none would perish, but all would come to repentance, is what our God says in the New Testament. And we as Christians should be ones that lead in that. It doesn't mean that there aren't D-days where evil is facing us and we have to fight it and it will cost us our lives. That's the story of this book and that's the reality of the world we live in. But as we do it, what's our heart? Do we have this heart like David? Do we have this heart that says, I understand what happens after death. And so I am going to speak of it. He goes on and says this. He says, they were swifter than eagles, stronger than lion. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lay slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. David is like, we had a relationship that other than God himself, there's no comparison. And of course, we know David struggled with his love for women. Multiple wives and later Bathsheba. He says, the mighty have fallen and the weapon of wars have perished. He comes to the end and he's just, this is the song of the bow. This is what we have written to this day, this song. Written by David. And can you imagine him writing and playing this song and thinking back of the memories of him writing and playing for King Saul? The time he spent with Jonathan and Saul in their chambers and with their family leading them in worship. And now he's playing again and he's just weeping and he's broken. Wonders how God will fix this. How I'm living in Philistine territory. I've not been doing what God wants me to do. But watch this as we wrap up. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 2, it says, So David went there. Or I'm sorry, it says, <clears throat> verse one, sometime later, David inquired of the Lord, should I go to one of the towns of Judah? Sometime later, we don't know how much later. Could have been months, years, we don't know. Probably not years, but sometime later. In other words, David doesn't rush in because, well, I've been anointed king, so now I gotta rush in and take over. He waits. He mourns. He cries out to God. He he struggles. And then he says, should I go to one of the towns of Judah? Should I go back to my people? I don't want to look like I'm taking advantage. I don't want to look like I'm trying to make something happen. I'm just inquiring of you. What should I do? Guys, that is the greatest question after death. If you've had death in your life and destruction and problems, inquiring of the Lord is exactly what we do. We go to him and say, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to go? How do you want me to behave? Look at this. It says, the Lord answered him, go. Then David asked, where should I go? <laughs> Great question, right? He just doesn't run headlong. He's like, where? To Hebron, 
the Lord replied to Heber. I want you to go to Heber. This is beautiful. David didn't want to appear opportunistic. He didn't want to say, well, I'm only coming back to Israel because now Saul's dead. David was careful. Gave time for mourning. So David went there with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. In addition, David brought the men who were with him, each one with his household, and they settled in the towns near Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David it was the men of Gabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Watch what David does. David comes in, he goes, the men embrace him, and watch what happens. David sent messengers to the men of Gibesh Gilead. You see, he was facing a moment where these men went and got Saul's body and buried him. In other words, he could have thought to himself, they're not loyal to me. Let me say that again. He could have thought to himself, these men were loyal to Saul, they're not loyal to me. They went and got Saul and buried him. Maybe the first battle we should fight as Judah is to go back again and get those gibbish Gilead guys like we did back, way back in Judges. It's not what David does. The Lord bless you because you have shown kindness to Saul, your Lord, when you buried him. Now may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness to you. And I will also show the same goodness to you because you have done this deed. They deserve no kindness. We don't deserve kindness. We deserve nothing. And yet David, representing the king that will come someday, extends incredible grace. Therefore be strong and courageous, for though Saul, your Lord, is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. In other words, I'll fight for you too. Regardless of your past, regardless of the mess, regardless of what happens, you can know that I'll be your king. That you have been gracious to Saul, that I was not against Saul. I was for God. And Saul wasn't. And that put us at odds. It's exactly what David lays out. This is beautiful. It's such grace, such beauty that David does. He's genuinely grateful. He's not trying to manipulate the situation. As we wrap up, this is the last passage. Hebrews 12, verse 1. God tells us, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's people that have died, gone on and us that are still alive in Christ let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us let us run with endurance it's going to take endurance David waited 26 years I don't know how long you've been waiting for something but I guarantee you it hasn't been probably 26 years and it says let us run with endurance the race that lies before us Keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's what David always did. He always came back to keeping his eyes on Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves. I'm going to sin, I'm going to mess up, Yahweh saves. That's what David did. Saul didn't. Saul lost sight. And then he says, he is the source and perfecter of our faith. For who the joy lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and is now sat down at the right hand of God's throne. He is the king. Sitting at the right hand of God. Extending his truth and his grace and his justice to the nations. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart. I tell you, the last few weeks, there was a lot of me growing weary and losing heart. Hard. Have a lot more compassion for people suffering. And the reality of the fact that most people die suffering in this world, they don't die in their sleep. That's the reality of our world. Like Memorial Day and D Day, 
We step out into battle. We step out not knowing what we're going to face, not knowing how the outcome is going to be. But after death, we have the confidence to know that there is a God who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who has been faithful since Adam and Abraham and all the way through, that says there is a plan And after your death, there will be those that come after you who will fulfill the covenant and continue until the day I come back to be the ultimate king. I would encourage you to ask yourself some of the questions from this passage. Are you surrendered to God? When you think about death, do you panic or do you have peace? Look, it's been an interesting few weeks. God's been speaking a lot to my heart and talking about the fact of our need as a church to continue to reach people, to continue to live solid, biblical, surrendered lives where we're at until Christ comes back. That's what we're called to as believers. And I would encourage you fully to make that happen in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for these passages that give us such hope that you tell us what happened. You don't hide it from us. And we're grateful. Thank you for your love, your compassion. Thank you that you've proven your grace throughout all of history for your people so that we can trust your grace. That yes, you're just. And yes, Saul and Jonathan were, were killed fighting in your name. David writes the song and says they weren't separated in life or death. Father, we can trust you to be our Savior. Help us to do that. Lord, I pray if anyone here is struggling, I pray that they would come back to you. They would inquire of you like David. They'd be willing to sing a song of your praise. And Lord, if anyone listening online or in this room has not made that decision to surrender to you or come back to you, I pray they would do it today. They'd finally say, man, God has told us what's happened. I can trust him. I don't have to be afraid of death, that there is life after this life. And it's found in Jesus, Jesus, what you've done. We thank you. We praise you. May we respond in our heart to you in worship.